Hello, Open Your Hymnal listeners. Before our episode, we want to take just a moment to thank all of you who joined us during our live stream events at NPM's 2017 convention in Cincinnati, Ohio. Thousands of viewers joined us for interviews and plenums with people like Dr. Tim O'Malley, Tony Alonzo, Monsignor Richard Hillgartner, and many more. You can still view these interviews on our YouTube channel. Just search for NPM Livestream. Be sure to check out NPM's new website at www.npm.org new to see the new and exciting things the National Association of Pastoral Musicians is doing. And now please enjoy our interview with composer Bob Hurd. Zach, we had an amazing week interviewing composers in Cincinnati. We sure did. I am still very much recovering. I read an article, I think they called it an introvert hangover, and I, I am just coming out on the other <laughs> side of that. I, I, I was just overjoyed to be able to talk to so many uh, composers and friends uh, for future podcast episodes, and it makes me really excited about this project and all of the future episodes that we're going to be able to bring to people. I knew that we were really getting in touch with a lot of people who are listening to it, a lot of musicians. What I did not realize and what I was really surprised about was how excited the composers themselves are about this project and that they are listeners and fans as well. Absolutely. I, I really enjoyed meeting some of these composers for the first time. And it was also great to reconnect with composers. Um, in particular, our, our interview guest today, Bob Hurd. I don't, I don't know if you remember this, Zach, but back when we were, you know, in early college, Bob Hurd took the both of us bowling. Do you remember this? Of course I remember that. It was one of the greatest nights of my life. <laughs> I, I still have the socks that he bought me. They have little, <laughs> they have little bowling pins on them, and I cherish them greatly. It was hilarious because I remember you picked us up from the airport. I didn't know who he was. He didn't know who I was. And f do you remember what we had like some time to kill? Like there was just nothing going on. Right. Yeah, this was exactly before right. Music Ministry Alive. Yeah, exactly right. And, and we couldn't think of anything to do on a Sunday evening to kill time. And then Bob had a stroke of genius. Yes. Let's, let's go bowling. Let's go bowling. And we were forever changed. Indeed we were. And I, I was grateful for his, his kindness and generosity of spirit then. And of course, overjoyed that how, how many years later, he was kind and generous enough to sit down and talk with us about his song, Panda Vida. Yeah. So on that note, please open your hymnal to Panda Vida. Hello, this is Bob Hurd. Um, I've been writing liturgical music for about 40 years, maybe 45 years, and uh, I'm still doing it after all these years. Pande Vida was written uh, on my honeymoon in Guatemala. I married a woman, Pia Moriarty, who had worked in Spanish for many years and was fluent. 
but uh, I was just learning, and I'm not really great at languages, whereas she has the language gene. But anyhow, we went to Guatemala, and while I was there, I had a Spanish tutor. And so every day, for about four hours, I was being tutored in Spanish. My wife, Pia, was just brushing up her subjunctive case in Spanish, but I was starting from scratch. And um, I made a deal with her that I would, the first three hours, we would do the lesson, whatever that was. And the last hour, I would bring attempts at bilingual songs to review with her and get her feedback. Pan de Vida was one of a number of songs that I wrote at that time. I was motivated to write it because I kind of grew up with the Los Angeles Religi Religious Education Congress. I, was, I went there as an observer, and then as I started writing music, I was a, often a presenter. Also, uh, I had been in college seminary for Los Angeles Archdiocese, and in both these settings, um, I encountered this situation of the dominant English-speaking culture sort of trying to make a little bit of room for Spanish here and there, whether it was masses at the seminary or masses at uh, the CCD Congress. And I just felt that it could be much better than it was. I mean, we'd have situations where they'd have music lined up for these liturgies. And maybe the Spanish song, it wouldn't be bilingual, it was Spanish, was the last one on the bill, and they just didn't get to it because they didn't need it. And some group or, or cantor had rehearsed it, and it just seemed really inadequate and sort of condescending. So I wanted to write something that would invite people to sing back and forth from their own language into the alternate language uh, and it would actually bring people together, uh, uh, sort of a different model, so that instead of having a, a Spanish song here and an English song there, we'd begin singing each other's music. We are the dwelling of God, fragile and wounded and weak. We are the body of Christ. In the actual composition of the song, I had a model. Uh, it was a song that I loved and that I learned during my seminary days. Uh, and it was a model for me because as a person not speaking Spanish at the time, I found it very easy to sing it. And that was uh, Pescador de Hombres. That was really my model. Uh, I wrote it in the same key as Pescador, and it's the same tempo, and I created a diff my own melody, but that, that was my model. For anyone who knows uh, my musical interests, uh, they would know that I'm really somewhat of a geek when it comes to music theory. And so I was really excited to talk to Bob Hurd about uh, some of the things that are happening harmonically in Pandavita. Um, there are a variety of borrowed chords. Uh, the verse actually starts tonicizing a different key uh, than the rest of the song. Um, there are just some really clever things that happen. Given all this, I was really surprised to hear Bob say that he had never really received any formal training in music theory or harmony. 
um, given the complexity of some of the things that he's doing in this song. I'm not trained in musical composition, but what I seem to have a gift for is melody. And so in my own composing, I'm deeply influenced by the music that I hear. And when I hear something that really moves me, I want to write something like that. So, you know, I grew up with uh, the influence of folk music. And then the Beatles were a huge influence. I, I still love the Beatles. And they would do very interesting things with chord patterns that nobody had done in rock music before that, you know. And they would move from major to minor to, uh, I'm thinking of some of John Lennon's pieces particularly. He had this penchant for moving into a, a very different space in a chord. Um, uh, but it, it, it goes to other things. Morton Lauritsen's music. I just love what he does uh, harmonically. And um, when I was commissioned to write uh, music for a church dedication, I... <laughs> I mean, one song after another, there's something of Lauritsen. I mean, it sounds pretentious to say that, but I was influenced by what he was doing with chord patterns. And I know this because, um, I mean, I was aware of it, but uh, an accomplished choral director who worked with me in presenting some of this music, when I told him I was, I'd been listening to Lauritsen, he said, I hear it here, I hear it there, I hear it in that song, I hear it there. So... Um, so I really am led pretty much by what I'm hearing and what moves me personally. Um, it's imitation, really, you know, for the most part. You know, when you start out learning guitar by reading chord charts in folk music, you learn all these basic chords, some, and a lot of them are major, some of them are minor, and you learn how the minor chord works in this key or in that key. Um, but over time, you know, C, F, G, and maybe an E minor and A minor gets kind of boring. And so what happens is you, you, you learn that there's this unusual chord, and, and then you, you say, oh, I want to use this in a song. And it, it's kind of as simple as that. It's learning, you, you know, as you, as you continue to play, you want to do more interesting things, and you begin to learn things. And uh, uh, I've done this both on the piano and on the guitar. In, for about half my writing career, I've actually been writing more on the piano than on the guitar. Um, but it's just learning chord patterns. And if I'm playing in the key of C, I know I can throw this half diminished or this diminished chord in here, and it'll produce an interesting sound. I picked some of that up too. I think a lot of that from gospel style music, which I love. And uh, so I hear these kind of crunchy chords and, uh, you know, say, how do you play that? Show me how you play that. And then I was able to work that into a, a song. So um, it's sort of haphazard, but again, it's imitation. Your people, oh 
In some of our previous conversations, we've talked with composers about how songs can sometimes become typecast. And I think that's the case with Pan de Vida as well. When I think about my experience with this song in my parish, in schools, you know, in campus ministry, as a student, this has the tendency to become used as the bilingual communion song. But the text of the verses really reveals and has a conversation about much bigger issues, especially when it comes to culture. So when it comes to crafting texts, I have this kind of bias toward the scripture where I want in song to invite people to have their own conversation with the scripture, their own sort of personal Lexio Divina in song, and that they they get the scriptural word in their mouths in song. The third verse, there is no Jew or Greek in Pandivita, was quite consciously drawn for that very reason. Even the other verses, uh, uh, you know, um, the verse about Jesus kneeling down and washing our feet, and so we must do likewise to each other. The whole thing was really very consciously you know, those bits of scripture were chosen for that very reason. Uh, the first verse, basically from Corinthians, we are the body of Christ, you know. There's a, a, a part of scripture that talks about Jesus tearing down the dividing walls between us. I've forgotten where it is, but it's a very strong statement. You who were once far off and strangers are now part of the family, you know. Pandavida is certainly not the first purpose-built bilingual liturgical song, but it is one of the earliest. And what, what I found interesting is the fact that this dates from 1988, which to me sounded really late. I would have thought that before this point in time in the history of, of, of church music, that there would have been this purpose-built bilingual music. So I was I was glad to hear Bob talk a little bit more about that history and also what it's like for him as a member of the majority culture to be writing music that will also be sung by the minority culture. Before Pandevida, there were a couple bilingual songs, uh, and there was a bilingual mass setting by Kevin Joyce in San Jose. So it's not as though Pandevida was the very first bilingual song. But it's true that before that, and those few other ones that I mentioned, the tendency was to take popular songs and translate them totally into English, or if it was an English song, totally into Spanish. The challenge was, instead of having English speakers trying to learn a Spanish song that they would occasionally do, or Spanish speakers trying to learn an English song that they would occasionally do, is to really enable people with bilingual music to have a foothold in their own language, but also cross over to the other language, and therefore bring really bring people together. I have to say, too, that I was very conscious of the fact that as a an English-speaking white person trying to inaugurate this, I was, you know, walking on eggs because 
I could easily make mistakes. And here is a person of the dominant culture creating something for the dominant culture and also people of the minority culture. Um, but what I experienced over time was a great generosity on the part of people of the Latino culture, uh, really appreciating this. I'd get some criticism. Why are you doing this? Who are you to do this? Well, nobody was doing it, so I did it. That's all there was to it. And mostly it was appreciated. But my great desire was that having done this, a Spanish-speaking composer would step forward and start doing it from that perspective. And gradually, that's what's happened over time. Uh, I was lucky to work and continue to work with Jaime Cortez, but many other people of the Hispanic cultures are now writing bilingual music. So I feel very good about that. I, I feel like I've done a service in that regard. So we are discussing issues of language, of culture, of how our faith communities are in fact multicultural and how we respond to that. And I can't help but think that we need to at least address in, in some sort of way the fact that all of those are major social, civic, political issues and points of contention at, at this point in terms of what's happening in our world and our country and current events. Yeah, it's interesting to think that even um, at a more general level, like not even getting into the specific text of the song, but just the fact that it's in two languages is somewhat of a politically charged item. Yeah, and, and, and this makes me, reminds me all the more of what a challenge and awesome responsibility it is to be a parish music director when you are called to unite a faith community that represents multiple cultures and language groups in worship together, even though the relationship between those faith communities um, may not be as smooth or easy as we would hope it would be. Yeah. You know, as as music directors, we're called to evaluate music for worship um, on the three judgments, liturgical, musical, and pastoral. And when you take all of these things into account that we're talking about here, that whole pastoral judgment becomes quite the hornet's nest of sensitivities, um, political ideas, um, and, you know, trying to figure out what will really make the church pray as one is a really difficult task. And I, I can't imagine, I mean, especially when you think of the reality that in our parish communities, there are people for whom English is not their first language, who worship in our churches, who have a real fear or concern about whether they are welcome here or they can even just in fact stay here, a fear of deportation. And they are members of communities alongside people who identify with a different culture, but the same faith community, who voted for or support policies that, you know, are for building walls or are for changing immigration. And I'm not, I'm not weighing in on how we ought to feel one way or the other. I'll, all I, I mean to say is we are members of communities that have that diversity of viewpoints, but are united in 
our faith identity and the way we worship. And that is a amazing and messy thing. One thing I've learned about polarization is that um, uh, maybe many of us have had this experience where somebody actually stands up and challenges you, um, naming all of these issues or fears. And one thing I've learned is that um, you have to get as close to that person as you can to discern and, and it might be even be physically, if you're in a situation like a group a discussion, you actually come close to that person physically. But you also, you're trying to discern what is the value that is at stake for them. Because sometimes what you find it, and, and can you honor that value? So um, oftentimes there's, there's multiple levels going on here. And there's a valid value that motivates them to respond in the ways that they do. But at a secondary level, there's disagreement. But at the, at the level of that bottom line value, uh, you can agree with them. And they can agree with you. Yeah, we are concerned about people being here who value the culture, who value democratic you know, values. Uh, we're all concerned about that. I agree with you on that. But what is the best way to enable that to happen. In, in other words, you you name the value that they're concerned about and you honor that. I'm not saying this is a silver bullet that solves every single case, but it is an approach that helps. We can have different ideas at secondary levels and yet find common ground below the surface. Um, I remember hearing Richard War talk about this once. He said, he was talking about polarization in the church and he said, if our communion with each other is based on the ideas in our heads and we can't agree, you know, then we can't be in communion because you have different ideas than I have. And our method for dealing with that in the past and over the centuries is if somebody has different ideas than you, then you get rid of them. <laughs> you know, but he said uh, that the the basis of, of union, as important as shared ideas, is, is the heart and the effective core, the, the, the sense that you extend love to this other person, that you extend compassion to them, that this is what Jesus is asking us to do. So, um, you know, Jesus approached people who had bad ideas. You know, they're ready to stone this woman because that's how they've always done it. And Jesus without using force or violence, gets inside their, their psyche and their hearts by saying, okay, if you who are without sin, cast the first stone. You know, I see this in a person like Gandhi or Martin Luther King. There's a way of challenging people that is nonviolent that actually forces them to have to think in a different or a new way without necessarily abandoning the value that they're trying to protect. I start from a, a belief and theological standpoint on a rationale for bilingual music, which is that it's about the unity of the body of Christ. So instead of having separate masses for separate language groups always, there have to be those times when we come together because the Eucharist that we're celebrating is about the body 
being members of the one body. And um, so when it comes to larger political issues like attitudes towards immigrants or um, reinforcing the validity of diverse languages in a culture, for me the, the first thing is this notion of our unity. So for example, uh, when it comes to the, the issue of immigration, which is, which is a complex issue, and people of goodwill can be on different sides of, of approaches to it, but especially in a Hispanic culture, which is largely Christian, largely Catholic, I consider those people part of my family, whether they're documented or undocumented. And you don't treat family members with terror. What I've seen happen with bilingual music in many communities that were dominantly English-speaking is that initially uh, there's great resistance. There's a fear, um, and there's a lack of knowledge of people of these other language communities. They They weren't mixing at all. And there was a sense that this is our church, not theirs. We let them use it but it's our church. As you try to be as charming as you can be with people to overcome some of these reticences and they actually have a good experience of a bilingual liturgy and they actually see their English-speaking cantor and their Spanish-speaking cantor up there together or their Spanish choir and their English choir all performing as a single unity choir, Uh, lots of new possibilities open up over time. And people begin to see each other as brothers and sisters. Uh, And the differences can be uh, rewarding instead of obstacles. Now, I'm sort of over-idealizing this, but I've really seen this happen over time in various parts of our country. And... uh, so I, I think uh, that notion of being the body and sharing the Eucharist together really gives a, a direction for um, facing some of these issues. And now, here is a recording of Pan de Vida in its entirety. Passion of God. 
Gran Señor, me inclino a lavarles los pies. Hagan lo mismo humildes sirviendo los unos a Thank you for listening to the Open Ear Hymnal podcast. Pan de Vida is published by OCP. The recording you heard was released by OCP on the album Pan de Vida. Links to this material and other resources can be found on our website, openyourhymnal.com. We'd like to specially thank Bob Hurd for this interview. Production assistance and support was also provided by Rick Modlin and OCP, and by Stephen Petronak in the National Association of Pastoral Musicians. Be sure to follow Open Your Hymnal on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you haven't yet, you can subscribe to this podcast through iTunes. Our next episode will feature an interview with composer Carrie Landry and his song, Hail Mary, Gentle Woman. I think I began for some reason, to think of Mary in terms of my own mother, because she was a very, very gentle, quiet light, quiet spirit. I just, I just felt a certain urging to begin to write, and literally while I was driving, the, the words of and the melody of the refrain came to me. Blessed day with peaceful spirit For Open Your Hymnal, I'm Matt Reichert. And I'm Zach Stahowski. Thanks for listening. Gentle woman, gentle woman, quiet light, quiet light, morning star.